Right, go ahead and grab your Bibles if you have them. Open up to Matthew chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles on the chairs there around you, underneath you. And if you're using those Bibles, you're going to go either to page 631, or if the Bible that you're using has a flame on the front of it, page 808, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13. As you're turning there, let me clean off the slate here. I had one lingering joke left for me by the joke leprechaun. He's not in here. He's out there wearing that security shirt, that new nice security shirt that he has. Did you hear about the fire at the shoe factory? Many souls were lost. Okay, slate's clean. You at Matthew chapter 2 yet? Because I'm not good at making up jokes, so I'm not going to. Matthew chapter 2 this morning. So as we continue to, to make our way through uh, the gospel of Matthew, um, let me ask you have, you, have you ever found yourself being uprooted? Having to move unexpectedly? Uh, dramatic life direction change unexpectedly? Tragedy strikes and your life is forever changed? Yeah, I'm sure almost everyone in this room has something that they can identify where that's been the case. Now, in that moment, though, in that moment, were you able to see any hope? Were you able in that moment where everything changed and, and you were completely uprooted, maybe you even found yourself in a place that you've never been before, were you able to in that moment see hope beyond that situation? This, this morning as we look at what's going on in, in Matthew's gospel, we're going to see the family of Jesus uprooted twice. We're going to see them running for their life. We're going to see them um, trying, trying to, to, to get away so that they can keep their family safe. And yet, in the midst of this, we're going to see that through all of this, there's hope beyond those situations. In fact, the very situations themselves are based in the God who is hope. So Matthew chapter 2, here's where we're going this morning as we look at these few verses. Jesus is the promised one who is the hope for the people of Yehovah. Remember, name of God here, Y-H-W-H, yod Hey vav Hey in Hebrew, pronunciation is uncertain. Yahweh is the most popular one. Yehovah is another one. I'm just going to interchange them from time to time because I don't know either. Jesus is the promised one who is the hope for the people of Yehovah. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Look with me there. Now when they had departed, this is now speaking of the Magi. The Magi had departed. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So you remember that there were some magi from the east, the region of Babylon, who had come because they saw a star. And usually when there was supernatural astrological signs, people who were stargazers associated that with births of kings or maybe deaths. But in this case, it's associated with a birth. And so they're following that star until they find the king upon whom it rests. 
and they find this, 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 this young child, right? And so uh, you also might remember that on their way into Jerusalem, they didn't quite know who or what they were looking for. They just knew there was a king that was born, king of the Jews. And so they stop in Jerusalem because, after all, that's the center of, of the, the nation. So they're asking, where is this king of the Jews who has been born? That's pretty gutsy because at that time there was another king on the throne, King Herod. We're going to come back to him in just a moment. But word got to King Herod that there's supposedly another king, one who's called king of the Jews, who's been born. That would be a threat to King Herod. And so he calls the Magi secretly, these these stargazers from the east. He calls them secretly and says, hey, tell me, where is he to be born? And, and they, they, had, they had inquired from the people that would know, and they said, in Bethlehem of Judah, and they, they quoted a, a scripture. And so Herod tells the, the Magi, well, when you go and you find the child, on your way back, come to me. Let me know where they, that child is so I, too, can go and worship. Now, we know from the way that Matthew's telling the story, he had no intent to go and worship, but he wants the information. And so the Magi, we were told at the end of last week, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod on their way back. And so they're going back a different way. That's where these verses pick up this morning, when they, the Magi, had departed. Okay, so we also saw that there has already up in this point in Matthew's telling of the birth of Jesus, there's also already been several places where God has used dreams to reveal his purpose and his plan to give direction, to give caution or warning. And we're entering in last week and this week and next week, we've got dreams showing up in all of these. And so an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now, when you're reading the scriptures, the difference between a dream and a vision is simply this. A dream is while you're sleeping. A vision is while you're awake. When God reveals things to you while you're sleeping, it's a dream. When he reveals things to you while you're awake, it's a vision. And so Joseph, in his sleep, he has a dream. Now, in this dream, the angel of the Lord appears to him. He's, he's had this dream before because the, there's an angel that appeared to him and told him, hey, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Remember when she turned up pregnant unexpectedly. That same angel in that dream previously had told, told Joseph about the mission of this, this child. Your, your son shall be called uh, Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So don't be afraid to take Mary. So now he has another dream. In this dream, he's told, rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Now, they're in, they're in Israel. They're in Bethlehem at this point. They're to go flee down to Egypt. South and, 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 and west of them, they're to go flee to Egypt because he's told Herod's about to search for this child to try to destroy this child. Now, Joseph's dream is pretty specific. It's very clear. Go to Egypt and stay there. Because Herod's about to search for your son and try to kill him. Very specific. No question, is this a dream from God? There's an angel appeared to him. No question about what is God asking him to do. It's very clear. I've been saying to you, what seems to be true in Scripture is when there is a specificity, when there is a clarity to the revelation, when it is very clear, very specific, it's a more weightier, more urgent matter. It requires a greater level of clarity. Now, 
We've also talked a little bit about dreams, and I want to talk just briefly about them again because this is still a common way that God speaks to his people. Now, most of us, if we've had dreams, maybe one, we don't think God speaks to us through dreams, and so we just think that that's our subconscious. It could be. Um, or we think that maybe we're on a medication and it's causing side effects. It could be. Right? So there are things we have to discern our way through, and we have to ask, is this a dream from God? God, was this from you? So already, we, we realize that a lot of times in, in, in dreams, we don't have the level of clarity that Joseph has. So we're having to discern, is that even a dream from God, or is it something else? But then oftentimes in our dreams, when we think they might be from God, oftentimes they're not even this clear where God is sending a messenger and saying, here's what I want you to do at this day on this time. I want you to go this place, and here's the reason why. We would love that. We probably pray for that kind of leading and guiding and direction often, but we probably don't get it very often. In fact, when we do have dreams, what we're left with is a lot of times our dreams have symbols that we are left to interpret. We're left to, to, to figure out what, is that, what does that eagle mean in that dream? And we can either go to the scriptures and look at what eagles mean in the scripture, or we can look at our current context and see what eagle might mean there, but we're still left going, Lord, I need you to give the interpretation because the interpretation of dreams belongs to the Lord, right? And so I want you to see that with Joseph, it is absolutely crystal clear. Get up, go. Get up, go. I don't want you to be discouraged if that's not the clarity that you get. I do, I do think, man, pray that God would give dreams, Pray that God would give you dreams and that he would, he would help you to remember those dreams and then that he would provide an interpretation for those dreams. I know several of you in this congregation, you have dreams. Sometimes you're, you're more clear on what they mean than not. And other times you're just wondering, will I even remember it? And some of you, you're, you're saying, you've said to me, I can't remember dreams. Start there. God, would you help me to remember my dreams? If you're speaking, if you're leading, if you're guiding through dreams, help me to remember them. And then practically speaking, write them down. Because if you write them down, you may forget about them later, but you'll go back. And I've told you, I've got a list of dreams going back for, for several years where some of them uh, I, I've been able to go, okay, maybe it's this, maybe it's not. Others I'm going, I have no clue. Write them down. Joseph is very clear. Why? Because this is a very urgent matter. It must be followed. And so verse 14, he rose and he took his child. Now let me ask you this. Egypt is a foreign country for people of Israel. In fact, Egypt's where Israel spent many, many, many centuries in slavery. Egypt is not worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To go to Egypt, you're going to be a foreigner in the land. To go to Egypt, you are going to, to be wandering through. If you were to take your wife and your young son, wouldn't you need an absolutely crystal clear revelation from God to follow? Yeah. God does not leave this one up for chance. He is crystal clear. Here's what I want you to do. Here's why you need to do it. Absolutely crystal clear. So he does it. And then he remains in Egypt until the death of Herod. Uh, we know Herod died in 4 BC. So we, we're talking he might have been there maybe a year or so, depending on the birth of Jesus, maybe about a year or so. But then we go on to this next phrase there. This next phrase. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Out of Egypt, I called my son. One of the things Matthew is going to be very careful to do, because I showed you with the genealogy, the very opening, Matthew is just picking up the story that God had begun all the way back in what we call Genesis. This is a continuation. It's nothing, nothing that is just like change of complete direction. This has already been revealed. It's just been unfolding in the, unfolding in the progress of time. Okay? 
So one of the things Matthew's going to do is he's very careful to tie this back to the scripture, back in the, the Old Testament. And so he said, by the way, Jesus going to Egypt and then later coming out of Egypt was to fulfill something that was written in the prophets, which says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now that comes from Hosea 11, chapter one. I mean, chapter 11, verse one, where it says, God speaking, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if you go back, and you should always do this, when the New Testament quotes or references Old Testament, you must always go back and read the context of the Old Testament. You have to understand what was going on in Hosea chapter 11 before and after in order to understand what Matthew might be doing. When you go and you read before and after Hosea chapter 11, you realize that Israel, in this case the northern kingdom, had been disobedient to God, and they were worshiping idols, and so they were in rebellion, and they were being led off to captivity to, to Assyria in the east. And yet God is reflecting and remembering this time back in Israel's early history when he brought them out of Egypt, the Exodus. He's remembering this time where he was making good on some promises made to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's bringing them out of Egypt where they had been enslaved for some 400 years. And he refers to them as his child whom he loved, and he says, out of Egypt I called my son. Very clearly in the context of Hosea, he's talking about the people of Israel, the group, the nation. And yet in Matthew, Jesus moving down to Egypt and then later coming out, Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill what Hosea was talking about. Well, what is Matthew doing? What Matthew is doing, there was, there was at least four ways that rabbis interpreted the Hebrew scriptures. I'm not going to go through all four, but I'm going to tell you two of them. Now, it's important for us to understand, when we hear these, we may go, yeah, but we don't agree with that. And it doesn't matter whether we agree with that. It matters that it took place. It matters that this is how rabbis wrote. It matters that this is how Hebrew people who were taught and educated learned when they went to their scriptures. And so the Matthew writing is going to follow Hebrew culture and practice. One is called Peshat. And, and this is just a simple reading of the text. It's what we most often do and what we are first and foremost likely to do. You read the text in its historical grammatical context. You're paying attention to sentences, words, phrases, paragraphs, thoughts, things like that. You're paying attention to background information, things like that. The Peshat, simple, right? It's what it says. In, in Hosea 11, the Peshat, the simple interpretation is he's talking about Israel, the people, the group, the nation. The, the next level would be uh, what's called remez. Remez would be there's a hint in the original that points to something that was at that moment unforeseen by the person writing it. But in that hint, uh, later in time or as God reveals, you're then able to go back and look at it and see it was pointing towards this. That's likely what Matthew's doing here. He's, he's recalling the story of Jesus' birth and how he went down to Egypt, and he remembers that Hosea talked about uh, God saying, Israel, my child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And one of the things he understands that he's going to try to help us understand is that Jesus, the Messiah, is the true Israel. He comes and he relives and follows the pattern of the people of Israel. He is coming so that he can do the things that Israel failed to do, but that he will do successfully. He is the one that it all points to. And so in that way, there's a parallel between Jesus the Messiah and the people of God Israel. Okay? And so when the people of God Israel are doing something, oftentimes what they're doing later shows up to be pointing to something that would be what Jesus did. And that's what Matthew's saying is, just like the people of Israel, God called his son, calling Israel his son, out of Egypt, 
Now he's calling his one unique son, Jesus, out of Egypt. There's a parallel taking place. Matthew's very intentional about doing that. We're going to see more of that in just a moment. So he says that's why, that's why this took place. So it just gives us pause to say, you know, Joseph probably didn't know that. Joseph had a dream. He went to Egypt, and he, he knows Herod's trying to kill his son. But, but did Joseph know that this was also going to be the fulfillment of something that God had spoken centuries before? No, probably not. Because you and I, we don't know that oftentimes. There are things that take place, and we don't get to know why. We don't get to know all the steps that go before. All we know is this is what it looks like in this moment to be faithfully obedient to God. We have no clue how our responsibility as humans responding to the creator God, we have no clue how that rubs against the very sovereignty of God. Not canceling it, not competing with it, a tension that must remain that we see in the scriptures where God is completely sovereign over all things and yet humanity is held responsible making real meaningful choices before him. And oftentimes when we don't even realize it, our choices which seem to us to be here in this moment are also in the sovereignty of God being guided and directed. Psalm six, uh, Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but God directs his steps. We keep going. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, remember they went back a different way, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's talk about Herod for a moment. So Herod's response is, when he realizes he's been tricked, remember, he's threatened by this king of the Jews. Herod was not a Jew. Herod was an Idumean. That's Greek for Edomite. Hey, remember, I introduced this to you last week. I said, I'm coming back around to it this week, but I wanted it to be familiar to you. Herod had no right to the throne in, in Jerusalem. He had no right. He knew that. Now, his family, a long time before him, was forced into practicing and converted into Judaism. And so there was some kind of level of despisement there, no doubt. But Herod himself, he's a puppet king of the Romans. He's on the throne. He knows he has no right. And the way that he rules and maintains the security of his rule is as a tyrant. He was murderous. He murdered his favorite wife because he thought she was cheating on him. He murdered his son because he thought his son was going to take the throne from him. He, he, would, he would murder anyone he thought was a threat, so much so that I told you last week there was a common saying, it's better to be a pig that belongs to Herod than a son of Herod. Herod had a reputation. He was not good. He was an Edomite. In order to understand the animosity that's taking place here and to see that this is actually connected to a very long line of history, we've got to go back and understand Edom. Who's Edom? So Edom is another name for Esau. Remember last week we looked at it. Um, Abraham gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gave birth to, uh, well, Isaac didn't and Abraham didn't. Their wives did. Abraham uh, had Isaac and, and Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the younger twin. I'm sorry, Esau was the older twin. Jacob was the younger. And normally the older was the one who gets the blessing and the birthright. But God had told um, um, Rachel in the womb, when they were fighting in her womb, she could feel there's something going on within her. 
right, where, where they're fighting within the womb, and she's inquiring of the Lord, what's going on in there? And he informs her, there's two nations in your womb, and they're at odds with one another, and they, they will be. And, she, and he says to her, the younger will actually rule over the older. The, the older will end up serving the younger. There's a flip, a reversal that takes place. So Jacob, the younger, is going to be the one that gets elevated, and the promise and the covenant gets passed on, and Esau is not. Now Esau was born very hairy, and he had a reddish tint to his hair, and Edom means red, and that's where the name Edom comes from. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau where Jacob um, is, is at home cooking and Esau was out hunting and he comes home and he's famished and, and Jacob has this red stew. And Esau, so famished, says, give me some of that red stew. And Jacob says, give me your birthright. And in a foolish exchange, Esau gives the, the right to the birthright so that he can in a moment have some of that red stew, eat him, red. And there was animosity ever since. Esau had a grandson named Amalek, A-M-A-L-E-K, Amalek. As we keep going through the history of the, the scriptures, we see that there is a tendency, a pattern for the people of Edom to be at odds with the people of Israel. When the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, when God is leading them out of Egypt, the Amalekites, the people that were descended from Amalek, come from behind as the people pass through, and they start to attack the people of Israel from behind, taking out women, children, older people, the, the vulnerable, which is a very shameful thing to do. And God will, will hold them accountable for that. Amalek, grandson of Edom. He's an Edomite. We keep going, and then we get to the time of David, and we know that David, uh, when he was on the run, he was anointed as king, but he was not yet on the throne. Saul was still on the throne, and Saul was trying to kill him often. And there's a, a point where David, in his running, he comes to a place where, where, where the sword of Goliath that he had slain is there, and he had no weapon, so he took the sword. But his men were also hungry, and so he took the, the, the bread that only the priests are supposed to eat, but in this moment, they, were, they gave him the bread. There was a man named Doeg, D-O-E-G, Doeg, who's an Edomite. And he worked for Saul. And so as a result, he goes and kills all the priests that helped David. Remember, the covenant's going to come through David. Okay? And you've got people of Edom trying to wipe out the people of the covenant. Go back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Right? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, but the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel. There's been a battle ever since between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent's trying to wipe out the seed of the woman. Okay, we keep going. We keep going and we get to the story of Esther. And in the story of Esther, there's a man named Haman. You remember Haman? Haman is called an Agagite. Now, if that word Agagite is a name, then it means that he was related to a man named Agag who was and a Malachite, who is also an Edomite. So Haman is an Agagite, and you remember in the story of Esther, he's trying to wipe out Mordecai, who is a Jew, and all of the Jewish people. And had he been successful, then all of the Jewish people would have been wiped out. We know he was not successful. But you see this line of the people of Eden coming against the people of Israel. Now, it's also true that oftentimes the enemies of Israel, even today to this day, they are typified in, in being either called Amalekites, even though it may not be the actual Amalekites coming against Israel, those, those people have become so um, 
known and, and fixed in the history of Israel that when people, enemies like Hamas, come up against Israel, sometimes they can be referred to as the Amalekites or the Edomites or Esau. One more thing about Esau that I mentioned to you last week. We know based on where Esau lived, he lived in a region called Seir, S-E-I-R, which was just south of Israel. We know that there was, was, was type of people that lived there. There were Rephaim. We've talked about the Rephaim before as we talk about Nephilim. They were descendants of the Nephilim. Nephilim, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Angels, human women, sons of God, daughters of men, and they had Nephilim. Then there's the descendants. They're called Rephaim. They're called Anakim. They're called different names. So we know they settled in a region where there were Rephaim. We know that there were also another group of people there. There's a, there's a possibility, as you dig into this, and I encourage you to dig into this, there's a possibility that the people of Esau, as they moved into that region, they started to intermarry. That's a very likely thing with some of the people who were descendants of the Nephilim. If that's the case, and I'm going to keep saying if because you've got to dig into this. If that's the case, and there's other things that could lend support to this, then you've now got an issue that's being passed in the bloodline. You've got an issue that's being passed in the bloodline that's carrying out an agenda to corrupt or wipe out the line of the seed of the woman. Who's the seed of the woman ultimately? We talked about in Matthew chapter 1 that Matthew presents Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the ultimate woman who Genesis 3.15 pointed to, and Jesus is the ultimate seed of the woman. And so if that line can be corrupted, then God's plan is spoiled. If that line can be wiped out, then God's plan is spoiled. You see that between Edom and Israel. Herod is an Edomite. Herod is murderous. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to wipe out the one born king of the Jews. He's carrying out an agenda that's been passed down for generation to generation to generation. So he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem in the region who were two years old and under. Why two years and older? Because based on talking to the Magi, he realized that this child is either two or slightly under two. So let's go ahead and catch them all. He was not trying to kill a newborn. The Magi, I remember we looked at it last week, they weren't coming and they didn't see a newborn. They saw a, a one, one and a half, maybe two-year-old at the most. They saw a, a toddler, right? And so he, he goes and he wipes them all out. Then Matthew tells us, this has fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So he gets us into Jeremiah. This is from chapter 31. He quotes Jeremiah 31. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Seems like Matthew's connecting a time where the scriptures talk about Rachel. Remember, um, that's one of the patriarch's wives. And so she's weeping and with the death of all these kids that are being murdered, she's weeping again. Well, what's the context here? See, and we went back in Hosea 11. The context was God was bringing his people out of Egypt. There's hope. He was bringing them out of Egypt. It was hope. Is there hope in this one, though? Jeremiah 31. We're going to look at verse 15. That's what... One Matthew quotes, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. One of the things that's true, again, when rabbis would write and when, when Hebrew people are studying the scriptures, this is true. When you would quote a scripture, it's not just what was quoted that was assumed, but the entire context was also assumed. 
In other words, Matthew is quoting one verse, but when Matthew quotes one verse, he's expecting his hearers to know and understand the context. So not just that verse, he's not cherry picking a verse like we like to do and build our theology on that. He's not doing that because you can support anything you want from the Bible. You can support absolutely anything you want from the Bible. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm telling you that you could. You could just take any verse you want, take it out of context and say, see, this verse right here tells me to chase my dreams and follow my heart. All the while, you'd be ignoring other verses. You have to understand each individual verse in its context. In its context. You have to read larger chunks than just one verse. So when Matthew quotes one verse, he assumes his, his listeners or his readers are going to know the rest of the context. And it's true then that the rest of the context applies. So what's the context? Rachel's weeping for her children. Thus says the Lord to Rachel, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. So the people of God in Jeremiah have been led away into captivity. For Jeremiah now, this is the southern kingdom. Remember, the kingdoms had split. And so later on in your Old Testament, you get the northern tribes, 10 of them. They're called Israel or Ephraim. And the southern tribes, there's two of them. They're, they're usually called Judah. Jeremiah is part of the southern. And he's talking about how they got led astray. And he was part of that. He got led away into captivity. He's part of that. And yet, even while they're in captivity, and, the, and, 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 and Rachel's weeping for her children because there's many of them that were murdered, there's many of them that were persecuted, God tells Rachel through, a, a, through Jeremiah's prophecy, keep your voice from weeping. They're going to come back. They're going to be led back into the land. In verse 17, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Even in the midst of the weeping because, because things were uprooted and people were having to be led astray and, and in their rebellion they were now experiencing the curses that guard the covenant. Even in that, God says, but there's hope for you still. You will return. And if you were to keep reading in Jeremiah chapter 31, you would come to verse 31 where it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Law, Torah. I will put my Torah within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Hope. Rachel, stop weeping because your people are going to come back into the land. Rachel, stop weeping because there's a day coming where I'm going to make a new covenant. This is the context. Who is Jesus? He's the mediator of that new covenant. He's the one who comes to bring in this new covenant, this one that is infused with hope that includes bringing the people back into the land. So even in the life of Jesus, we find out that even as he's uprooted and he's being led to, to Egypt, and even as Herod is killing all these babies, there's hope in the midst of that because what God is doing, what God is doing brings hope. One more thing before we wrap this up. The life of Jesus not only parallels the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not only parallels Israel, 
You might remember if you've been doing the reading plan uh, last week, I think it was, you would, have, you would have read about Abraham going down to Egypt because of a famine to seek shelter there and find food. If you go further back, you might remember, um, I mean, further forward, you might remember that Jacob uh, went to Egypt where his son Joseph had been elevated second in command so that they can survive in Egypt, um, a famine. So the people of God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, have found themselves going to Egypt to survive. Jesus is now finding himself going to Egypt to survive. But one of the other things that Matthew is very intentional about doing is showing us how uh, Jesus is the new and greater Moses. How Jesus is the prophet who is like Moses. Deuteronomy 18, Moses talked about there will be one who comes and you should listen to him. Matthew is going to be very intentional. Real quick, Exodus 15. Exodus starts out, not 15, sorry, that should be chapter 1, verse 15. Exodus starts out, there was a new pharaoh in the land who didn't know about Joseph. And the people of Israel had grown numerous, and he became threatened by them, so he enslaved them. You know this story, I think. He enslaved them, and he puts them to forced labor. At some point, he decides that there's too many of them. We need to stop the flow uh, of these kids. We need to depopulate. Oh, that sounds familiar. We need to depopulate. Okay, then the king said in, in chapter 1, verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shepra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and not and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. You should go back and read this story. Pharaoh says, kill all the male child, children. These, these midwives said they would not do that. They feared God more than they feared people. You get to chapter 2, um, sorry, verse 18. So, so the king gets angry. Pharaoh gets angry, and he starts killing everybody. Go to chapter 2 now. Chapter 2, we find out there's a man in the house of Levi. He went and took his wife, a Levite woman, the woman conceived and bore a son. According to Pharaoh's edict, that son should have been killed. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds in the riverbank. Uh, as, and the sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river with her young women, walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman uh, to go in and then ultimately find a nursing maid, which ends up being Moses' mom. I think you're probably familiar with that story. If not, go back and look at it. But here's what we have happening. Now you've got Moses, the mediator of the first covenant, who under the threat of being murdered as a child, is sent, he's already in Egypt, but he's sent now and he ends up in the very house of Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And it is him who God is going to use to bring his people out of Egypt. Matthew is lining this up for showing us that this is the one who is like Moses. Jesus is the one who is like Moses. And there's hope. There's hope. Jesus is the promised one who is the hope for the people of Yehovah. There's a lot that this could be hitting you on. One of the, the levels it could certainly be hitting you on is what are you going through right now? And can you see the hope? Because Jesus is the one who is promised and he fulfills these things that, that infuse hope within us, he is the God who gives hope. 
So the, the situations that you find yourself in, if they seem hopeless, they appear hopeless. As we read about these situations, we know that we have a God who is a God of hope. A God who takes, even in the most tragic of situations, who still says, but there's hope. You can stop your weeping because there's hope for you. And so today, if you find yourself in a situation where you feel hopeless, my prayer for you is that God would give you his hope in that situation. That even though it seems impossible and you see no way through or no way to the other side, that God in this moment, you would give them and infuse them with your hope. And then, Father, I'm asking that you would let your spirit come and that you would teach us, teach us from these words of Scripture what's true and what's right, what's lovely, what's good, what's pure, whatever is excellent and worthy to be praised, that we might think upon these things. And if there's anything I've taught that is wrong or inaccurate, block our ears from that and then guide us into truth that we might correct that. Help us to be a people of hope, And the things that are squashing our hope, choking it out, reveal that to us, shine light into the darkness that we might then cast those things off and run to the very God who gives hope. And Father, this morning, if there's someone here who they don't have hope, they don't live with hope because they don't know the very God who gives it, would you open their eyes this morning that they might see your beauty and the hope of the gospel that you sent the promised one, Jesus, that he might live a, a life on our behalf in perfect obedience to the Father, that he might then die a death on behalf of the guilty, so that in him we might become righteousness of God. He takes our sin, we become the very righteousness of God. There's an exchange that takes place. Would you let that exchange take place this morning as those who do not know you come to faith in Christ? And here in just a second, we're going to dismiss, and so I'm going to invite our prayer team forward. Go ahead and grab their lanyards back there. If you'll go ahead and grab those and come, up, come on up. We have folks that will be available to pray with you about anything, sickness, disease, life direction, um, questions about what does it look like to trust in Christ, anything that you, you have, they're prepared for that. Just grab a lanyard. You guys go ahead and make your way up. They'll be here. They're looking for you, okay? They'll be available to pray for you. Now may Jehovah bless you and keep you. May Jehovah make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Jehovah lift up his face upon you and give you peace. Amen. See you next week.